I'm Rabbi Nicole Guzik. And I'm Rabbi Erez Sherman. And, and this, this is SinaiCast. Sinai Catch up with Sinai Temple's latest programs, speakers, exclusive content. Candid conversations and inspiring connections. Follow us now. Bringing Sinai wherever you go. piece um just did anderson cooper did a bunch of other stuff i think i've earned my small glass of port you more than have you've more than earned it i i just would have brought my own i didn't know um maybe i haven't earned it yet maybe in an hour i heard i know we're live it's okay it's okay it's all right i'm an adult i'm alive exactly exactly I'm it's kind of glitchy a little bit, Brett, but we're going to go with it. Hang on one okay. second. Um, I'm going to just turn this off. My desktop is slow, but let's just go with it because I don't know. Try. Let's just go with it. Well, Brett, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I know it's been a long day for you and you're um, fitting us in at the end of a very long day. Um, but we're so pleased to have you. Uh, I'm just going to share a little bit um, about you. Brett Stevens is an op-ed columnist for the New York Times and editor-in-chief of Sapir, sapirjournal.org, for those who want to check it out. A new quarterly dedicated to exploring issues of Jewish concern. He has previously worked as a foreign affairs columnist for the Wall Street Journal as editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post. And among many Prizes and distinctions are the 2013 Pulitzer Prize for Distinguished Commentary, the 2019 Ellis Island Medal of Honor, and three honorary doctorates. He was raised in Mexico City, educated in the university at the University of Chicago and the London School of Economics. And we are thrilled to have you here tonight. Um, I just want to make mention that you served as one of our um, esteemed presenters at the Abner and Rosalind Goldstein Scholar in Residence Lecture Series. And now we're pleased to have you under the umbrella of the Sinai Temple Israel Center. So I would say if we were in person that everyone should join me in a round of applause in welcoming you um, and in gratitude thanking you for making room for Sinai Temple. So thank you for joining us. Thank you. Do, do we have an okay connection? I, you're, you're fine for me. They're saying okay. yes. Okay, thanks. I just, Was I, I glitching for you? You were glitching for me. Um, I guess it happens. Um, we are here in uh, the boonies of, of New York State, or mountains of snow. So that might have a little I something see. to do with, with the connection, but hopefully everything will be fine and uh, uh, you'll be Yes, I think it's a little off, Brett, is what they're saying to me, but we're just going to do the best we can. We're going to do the best we can. Do me one favor. Um, let me just turn this off and hopefully. We said it's getting better. Yeah. Hopefully we'll be able to fix this. And I'm sorry for those who have to watch this unfold. We'll figure that out. Hopefully it'll work. It's fine. And you know, the one thing, one of the things we've learned over the course of the last, you know, almost two years is that we have to 
pivot when needed and be flexible. So we're doing it. Um, anyway, so, it's nice to see you and it's glad to be back virtually with Temple Sauna. Yes, thank you. Uh, before I get into the um, kind of regularly scheduled topic, um, it's unfortunate that we start this evening, um, can't help but speaking about the tragic circumstances of the hostage situation that occurred this past Saturday um, at Congregation Beth Israel um, in Texas. And the reason why I wanted to bring it up to you in particular tonight, like I said, before we jump into the meat of the program, um, is because I received, as I'm sure you did, as I'm sure other um, leaders across the country did, um, just posts and emails outrage over um, the original comment made by the FBI um, as to this not necessarily looking like an anti-Semitic attack, which I know was um, you know, then kind of walked back. Um, but I'm wondering if you'll start us there in terms of how you think the media res responded, how the media helped shape the narrative of this particular event, um, what it looked like immediately, you know, Saturday night, Sunday versus today. Will you start us there? I don't know if I'm frozen. Am I frozen, Brett? Now you're just back. I'm back. Did you hear anything I said? I got, I think, 90% of your question. Am I frozen now? It says Brett's frozen. We're, it's okay. We'll, we'll take 90% of an answer. It's <laughs> <laughs> you know, can I make a suggestion for the benefit of everyone? Why don't we just reboot and hopefully uh, we will, does this work make sense for your media team? Would I, that... I can't answer that question. Um, that will have to be our media team. We, we are, are okay, okay. Nay. Okay. No. Okay. All right. Well, listen, it's an excellent question and it's a particularly excellent question, Rabbi, because you're catching me um, just an hour or so off of writing a long essay for Sunday Review on precisely the subject that you raised, which was the, um, to my mind, appalling and appallingly ignorant statement uh, from the FBI, uh, the fact that it was parroted by um, media organizations that uh, ought to uh, know better, the fact that in so many of the news stories that I saw that were not specifically from the Jewish press in the United States or the, or the press in Israel, there was this curious omission mm -hmm. of the fact that this was an anti-Semitic um, attack, which is not the kind of omission that you saw or any of us saw when, for example, horrendously last year, that was, there was that horrible attack uh, in Atlanta against the, uh, against, uh, uh, the massage uh, uh, parlors. It was not right, right. what we saw in 2015 in the racist uh, white supremacist attack on the church in South Carolina. And, and, and this is an important point. It also wasn't what we saw after the Temple of Life synagogue uh, attack in Pittsburgh in, right. in 2018, yeah. where, the, um, where the, the Tree of Life, where the assailant was clearly a right-wing uh, nut job. Um, and uh, the, point of my piece is really to, to speculate about this, what I think is this sort of strange wall of denial and obfuscation 
um, and, uh, and misdirection, the trouble that too many people have in uh, calling out anti-Semitism when it is as plain as day. Now, in this case, um, we had an assailant who repeatedly ranted about Jews, uh, called um, a prominent rabbi, Rabbi Buckdahl in New York, right. thinking that surely she could spring uh, this uh, imprisoned terrorist uh, uh, free from, from, from jail, um, going on and on about the Jews so that it was unmistakable that this was anti-Semitism. And yet even then, even then, they had trouble naming it. And I think there's a double injury, Nicole, that we're talking about, because not only are Jews being assaulted um, in a physical sense and having their lives put at risk in a physical sense, but they're also being assaulted in a moral sense when they are denied the right to name their crime, name the crime that was, excuse me, name the crime that was committed uh, uh, against them. And so we need to really, I think it, it calls on a number of things. One of them is calling out this omission, this failure, denouncing it. But the other aspect, and this is what I spent a lot of time doing in my, in my essay for the Times, is actually explaining to people what anti-Semitism is. Because I think people have trouble understanding what its roots are. Like the coronavirus, it is a mutating virus. It, it's shape-shifting. It doesn't always look the same from one generation to the next. And I think those of us who are engaged as you are, as I try to be in the Jewish community, really have a responsibility to make this kind of... Um, this, this aspect of this hatred clear to people who might not otherwise fully understand it. I think it's so interesting. I was, um, as we all were, you know, going through Instagram and Facebook, and I was um, really curious to see how many of my non-Jewish peers, um, faith leaders, you know, would make comments, um, either speaking out, as you said, um, or say anything. And it was, um, it was sadly very silent, silent. Uh, and I think you offer um, a poignant challenge to all of us that we're clearly not defining anti-Semitism in the way that we need to or the way that people are hearing it. Um, and even within our own community, not enough Jews are calling out. So go ahead. Well, listen, I mean, you know, anti-Semitism is a unique kind of hatred in that just as the Jews are a unique kind of people. And um, it is a hatred that is at times um, religiously based, at times racially based, at times based on notions of um, ethnicity or nationalism. Mm -hmm. um, uh, because in part, because Jews have multiple, um, have multiple identities as, as a religion, as, uh, as a people, as, um, as a nation. And so the anti-Semitism to which so many people uh, or so many people thought they understood was the anti-Semitism of the Nazis, right. which is racially based anti-Semitism. But before there was racially based anti-Semitism starting in the 19th century, there was religiously based anti-Semitism. And now there is anti-Zionism, which to my view is simply the the Delta variant 
of you know whatever the variant was uh, that uh, that came before, or choose your 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 uh, Greek uh, your Greek letter for which version uh, which version this is. One important point, and I've thought about this for a long time, is the understanding that anti-Semitism, what we call anti-Semitism, what we probably should call just Jew hatred, but what is generally called anti-Semitism, hatred, uh, hatred of the Jewish uh, uh, people, is a conspiracy theory and a fantasy based on a notion of Jewish power. And that's, that's the connecting thread. That's why this man, whose name I refuse to mention, who went into the synagogue in Texas, went on and on about how Jews would have the power, surely, to bend Biden's uh, to twist Biden's arm to get a notorious terrorist released uh, uh, released from prison. So much of the hatred against Israel is based on a concept of Israeli power, which anyone who knows Israel knows is just totally out of proportion to the New Jersey-sized uh, country uh, uh, country that it is. And it's more than that. I said, you know, it's a conspiracy theory. It's a conspiracy theory based on this idea that Jews are swindlers and imposters. A hundred years ago, the idea was that they were swindlers and imposters stealing Europeans of their patrimony, that they weren't real Europeans, they were Semites. That's why we talk about anti-Semitism, right? And anti-Zionism is a conspiracy theory claiming that Jews are swindlers and imposters, swindling Palestinians, allegedly, of their land, uh, and imposters by pretending that they're Middle Eastern when in fact, they are from uh, they are from Europe. So these are you really when you start to talk about it that way, you understand just how aligned these two distinct hatreds are. And I'm wondering if you could speak more to the um, just freedom in which people feel that they can offer anti-Zionistic rhetoric, um, which I heard so much May you know 2021 um, Israel and war with Hamas over and over again, I'm, I'm just speaking about Israel. This has nothing to do with the Jewish people. I'm just yeah. speaking against you know, uh, the Israeli government. This has nothing to do with Jews. Rabbi, I need you to know that. Or Nicole, I need you to know that. But maybe you can speak more to that. I, I'm curious also where, when, that, when you say like the Delta variant, when did that shift? When did it become so acceptable to demonize Israel um, and to, to say this has nothing to do um, with being Jewish? Well, I mean, that's that's an interesting, your last question is an interesting one and in that you can date it in all sorts of ways. The Zionism is racism resolution in the, at the UN uh, in uh, the mid uh, 1970s, at the time seen really as a scandal for the UN. Now it's become sort of entirely uh, uh, mainstream, but it's, right. it's, been, it's been a process. You know, one of the points that I, well, two points, number one, I think that when you are, when one is confronted with that allegation, you should say, let's get something clear. Criticism of Israeli government policy, even stern criticism, even criticism I, I deeply disagree with, is fair game. You wanna criticize the settlements? Criticize the settlements. You think Israel has no business being anywhere in uh, the West Bank? Say so, say it loudly, lots of people in Israel do. There are many things to criticize about Israel, just as there are many things to criticize about the United States. 
for many people on this call, they either hated Donald Trump or some of them maybe now hate Joe Biden. That's part of the nature of a democracy. Right. You criticize the policies of a country and it's part of the nature of, 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 of free people when you, when you, you know, look at policy in France, Japan, other countries, you can say, well, I object to this and this and this. It doesn't make you anti-French, anti-Japanese. But anti-Zionism is very, very different because then you're not simply criticizing a policy, you are criticizing the existence of a nation. Mm -hmm. So it would, it's the difference between criticizing the United States because you don't like, let's say, Donald Trump and saying the United States ought not to exist as a country. Everything about the United States is foul from the con its founding, the constitution. There is no business, you, a country like the United States has no place on this earth. And that is what anti-Zionism is. And so that is a point that needs to be clear. You wanna criticize Israel, fine. What you're doing, undermining the right of a country to exist is a, to is a totally different sport. And the second thing is, even if you were to acknowledge for the sake of argument, which I wouldn't, I wouldn't easily do, but let's say for the sake of argument that anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism are totally distinct phenomena, you are still, as an anti-Zionist, arguing for the destruction of a country which 10 million people call their homes, mm. which 10 million people are citizens of, which 10 million people want to remain as a homeland for them and their children and, and grand, grandchildren. So even on its own terms, divorced of any question of anti-Semitism, which I don't think you can do, but even on th those terms, it is an absolutely foul and evil ideology. Thank you. I didn't mean to derail us, so I appreciate. Um, I think many of us would be curious about your own journey. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you, you know, got into um, the, got on the track, the, the journalistic track, but then um, more specifically, um, as this expert in speaking about anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism, speaking about Israel and the media, um, what led you to this path? I don't know if our um, congregation at Sinai has had a chance to hear about that journey in this way. Well, since I'm speaking to a, a congregation, don't be fooled by the name. Uh, my <laughs> father's father was born in Kishnev uh, at the turn of the century and uh, fled after the pogrom of 1903. His name was Ehrlich. And at some point, um, he decided to go the whole distance and change his name to the blandest uh, uh, Anglo name that he could think of, which is Stevens with a PH. So those of you who are curious, that's how Stevens came around. On my mother's side, my mother's roots are in Lithuania. Uh, they're rabbinical roots. My mother's family's name is Grodzinski. And if people, a few people might know the name Grodzinski in the, in the history of Lithuanian uh, Jewry and, and, and distinguished Lithuanian um, uh, rabbinical, uh, rabbinical family. Um, there's a long story connected to my mother who was born a hidden child in uh, Nazi occupied Europe um, in, uh, uh, at, the, at the very beginning of the war. But let's, so that's a little bit about the, the roots. Fast forward to the year 
1999-2000, I'm a young uh, journalist based in Brussels for the Wall Street Journal. And um, what happens is that when you have a name like Stevens, people sometimes don't realize um, that they'll say things, not understanding that there is a, a Jew um, in the room with them. And so what my grandfather thought had, was his ticket sort of out of Judaism and out of his Jewish identity ended up weirdly becoming my ticket into my Jewish identity wow. because I was exposed to uh, types of anti-Semitism which I never realized existed in such a virulent form, particularly in Europe. Um, while I was at the Wall Street Journal in Europe, I was assigned to cover the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I started doing that uh, very extensively, uh, particularly right after 9-11. And uh, not long after 9-11, I was reached by the person who was then the publisher of the Jerusalem Post, who asked me to uh, take over the newspaper as its editor-in-chief. I told him I was 28 years old. Oh Actually, I was, I was 27 when he called and I oh turned- Oh my goodness. Over. Um, and, uh, and then went to Israel and ran the Jerusalem Post editorially, uh, news and editorials for the next almost three years. Met my wife there. Our daughter was born at Hadassah and Karim. Oh my gosh. Uh, she just got into college a few weeks ago. And, um, uh, and since then we've moved back to the United States. I worked for the Wall Street Journal for many years and then made this big leap from 48th Street to 41st Street. Um, first of all, mazel tov to your daughter. That's Thank incredibly you. exciting. And I just can't believe this 27, 28 year old gets a call like that. Um, and how exciting and how blessed we all are to have your wisdom from the beginning of that journey. Um, and I'm curious, especially since You've been so immersed in Israel's PR, if you will, immersed in um, the story and the narrative of, of this small country the size of New Jersey. Do you think we've lost, or do you think Israel's lost its PR battle? So funnily enough, I've just written an essay about that for Sapir. Oh, I love that um, you have. I did not know that. <laughs> uh, so a couple points. A, I'm not in the PR business, and I don't see myself as a PR person for Israel. Israel is a country of human beings uh, who screw up. It is um, perfectly correct to criticize it. If you go through uh, my written work, I've uh, criticized a lot of aspects of uh, Israeli policy. I called for Benjamin Netanyahu to step down. I think that's all part of the absolutely fair give and take of being a commentator on national and international affairs. Where I draw the line is in what I think is the um, baseless and malicious defamation of a state in a way that to me frequently smacks of anti-Semitism. And just as um, it's perfectly correct for any journalist to call out racism or sexism uh, or xenophobia when they see it. I think it's perfectly okay and uh, correct for me to call out anti-Semitism, particularly when I see it 
being disguised when I see it behind the veil of a much more uh, fashionable uh, anti-Zionism. Now to your, to your question, Rabbi, uh, so I've been giving speeches to Jewish audiences for now many, many years. And the question you asked is one that I get asked all the time. So naturally I've, I've kind of given it some thought. And I would say, number one, that um, people who see themselves in the business of defending Israel, whether they are journalists or spokesmen or just interested, you know, uh, concerned citizens, make three big mistakes. Mm. Um, uh, they um, address the wrong people. They address the wrong people in the wrong places and they address them with the wrong arguments. Mm. So the, often the battle is waged with people who are responding with bad faith arguments. You know, it's like talking to someone who asks you, when did you stop beating your wife? You know, a lot of, a lot of the argumentation, it's a classic, as you know, it's a classic rhetorical trope, you know, when did you stop beating your wife? Um, uh, well, similarly, you know, the questions are, well, why does Israel deliberately kill so many Palestinian children, right? That's, so you're automatically, when you're having debates with people who are making bad faith arguments, you, are, you have entered into a territory of lies mm -hmm. where the liar has the local advantage. Mm -hmm. And they can say anything, they can hurl any accusation and ultimately simply exhaust the other side through kind of like a process of moral attrition, because there's always some new lie, some new fable that has to be meticulously deconstructed, disproved. So a lot of energy is expended having arguments with people who we should just turn our backs on. Um, the, the, the right response to someone who says, Israel is a genocidal state that has no business existing in the world is, is not outrage, it's just indifferent silence. And, and by the way, those people want outrage. That's what they're trying to do. It's like a bully who um, picks at someone waiting for the angered response. There is power in indifferent silence. This doesn't mean don't engage the fair-minded critics who say one thing or another, but I'm talking about a certain kind of critic. Okay, I wanna ask more about this. Like I wanna ask the question. Well, I'm just, you know, it's interesting when you say that, um, and I've certainly been in those scenarios, and I'm, I'm sure many of the viewers and participants have as well, where, where you get a sense, I, I, I picked the wrong fight, right? I'm with someone in which they're not listening, they're just screaming, you know, um, it, it, it's not worth the conversation. But I've been in conversations with people that are just clear, let me say this in a non-offensive way, that are, are misinformed. Yeah. Um, and so I don't think that those conversations um, are the ones that we walk away from. And I'm particularly thinking, it was a question I wanted to bring up in a little bit, and if it fits here, great, if not, then later. But when you think about students on the college campus um, who hear words like Israel, genocide, um, apartheid, you know, these kinds of um, labels where I, I really don't, think that those students are the ones that um, deserve to be walked away from. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? 
Sure, and I think that's a fair point. And I think you have to sort of play it by ear, so to speak, in terms of the conversations that you think are worth having and those um, that aren't. But the pro-Israel community expends huge resources mm-hmm. trying to win over this, these, you know, a handful of students who might be won over or might not be. Um, and um, usually it's, my experience is that um, it's very hard. It's very hard to win those conversations. I think the easiest thing to say is, you know what? You have an opinion. Israel's a sovereign state. It's not going to listen to you. If you want to be part of a relevant conversation, I urge you to inform yourself because um, Israel is not the caricature that you've been led to believe. Have a great day. Mm. Um, and uh, there's, a, there's a limit to, our, to, to the amount of effort that can be thrown into that fight. You can only plow uh, an arid field so many times. This is the, the other thing that, that, that a lot of champions or supporters of Israel do. You know, they want to have a big Donnybrook, um, to use an Irish word, uh, uh, you know, at um, UC Irvine or, uh, you know, the campuses that are, that are the kind of the hothouses yeah. uh, of, these, uh, of these places. And again, you're picking a fight in terrain that's not friendly. And the final aspect is a lot of the arguments that are being made, like, well, um, you don't correctly understand the meaning of the Resolution 242 of 1967, which called for withdrawal from territories, but not the territories, which was a point that Arthur Goldberg insisted on, you know, when he was ambassador to the UN, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> this isn't a battle being fought between scrupulous pedants, okay? So, you know, um, you want to invest your energy in uh, areas where you think you're going to get a return. And we're so obsessed with, let's face it, the college campuses where our children might be going to school or where we'd like them to go to school, that we miss this fact that around the world, in places that we never think about, there are millions of people who are, if not um, uh, friends of Israel, are potential friends of Israel, who haven't been indoctrinated, brainwashed, taken to a BDS campaign. Um, But look at Israel as this surprisingly resourceful, plucky, imaginative country of people who are always, in every sense, punching above their weight. And they're curious. They want to know more about it. What, What are we doing? What are we doing to engage millions or hundreds of millions of people who could be won over to Israel's side, at least as, as well-wishers, as friends, as non-enemies. The, the, imagine an, a, a tech entrepreneur from the Emirates or an agronomist from Vietnam or an anthropologist from Mexico, a universe of people, especially those at the top of the knowledge economy, who are really excited about a lot of what Israel does. So the thought that I would offer, and I could go on all night about this, but the thought that I would offer is what can be done in a thoughtful way to engage people without asking them to, without asking them to change their politics or even be political, mm-hmm. but simply to fall in love with a very special country, 
and then let everything else fall into place. I really appreciate that perspective um, because I think you're correct that, that many of us are expending way too much energy fighting and fighting and fighting and what would it look like to um, have some coalition building, if you will, some partnerships um, with allies perhaps we've, we've never thought of before. But you used the word before, um, inform yourself. You know, take the time to inform yourself. So if you could let, um, I, I was speaking to some congregants and they said, please, please ask Brett, which, um, which publications, which um, different resources involving Israel would you recommend? What do you, what do you think we should be having on our bookshelf um, or you know, in our inbox? You know, there's a lot actually. I mean, people talk about um, how terrible journalism is, and and uh, you know that that you know there's there's nothing to uh, you know, that we're surrounded on, on by enemies on on all sides. First of all, media is a plural noun. Um, even at the New York Times, I I hasten to add, um, there are some some great friends of or people who are who are um, really worth reading. Um, not because they're partisans, but because they're great journalists. Um, uh, you know, I find myself drawn to a new series, a relatively new set of publications. I think Tablet has been on fire. Um, and I think the, what the job that Alana Newhouse and her team uh, is just, just stupendous. Um, I think Barry Weiss has been extraordinarily entrepreneurial and innovative, not at all surprising. She's an old friend of mine uh, and she goes from strength to strength. I think there is, um, in LA, I think of David Suisa, whose commentary I uh, always uh, read. I think he's, he's brilliant. And there, LA has some really exciting Jewish, uh, Jewish journalism. Um, I mean, I can, there's a list of people that I could, I could think of out there who, who I, I just routinely make a point of reading. I read a lot of the kind of quasi-alternative publications like Quillette, um, uh, just because you, know, you find stuff that you don't find elsewhere. But look, you know, because of the job that I'm in, I also spend a great deal of time reading the so-called mainstream publications um, and then reading a lot of, uh, a lot of the product of think tanks. I think the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies mm -hmm. uh, with Mark Dubowitz and Roel Gerecht and Cliff May are superb. And they, they put out a lot of written material in addition to their, their work, uh, um, their, their more um, uh, action-oriented work. The Washington Institute on Near East Policy um, just puts out superb stuff. So I, you know, my, my kids are always like, you're always on the phone, dad. And I'm like, no, I'm reading. You're I'm reading. reading. Exactly. Um, I just want to take this moment. Let's see. Um, a question from um, those participating. Um, okay. I, I mean, I think you spoke about this a little bit, but the question is, there's been a marked shift um, in how anti-Semitism is covered in the media of recent. Do you think the pendulum will swing back or how we moved into a new phase of anti-Semitism in the U.S. media? I think the pendulum will swing back to the extent that um, decent people demand that it swing back. And so 
it's not the problem with the metaphor of the pendulum is that it has a quality that metaphor suggests a certain kind of automaticity, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, it ain't automatic. Uh, people have to be outraged when they see something as outrageous. And by the way, you know, I would just note um, after five days, the director of the FBI finally acknowledged the obvious that this was an anti Semitic attack. But I think it was only from the badgering of um, Jason Greenblatt and others at the ADL that that uh, changed. So um, good for, right. uh, excuse me, I said Jason, I, I meant Jonathan Greenblatt. Jonathan, yeah, it, it uh, makes a also, difference. There's also Jason Greenblatt. Um, uh, uh, so it involves, it, you know, there, there's, no, there's no getting away from active citizenship. Mm -hmm. And when we use terms like pendulum, we're essentially resigning ourselves to an idea that it's all uh, outside of our hands. But Soviet Jewry wasn't liberated by um, a pendulum swinging. It was liberated by people marching on Washington and making demands. Um, and great things are only going to happen in Jewish life uh, if, um, if people um, engage. And, and if we see a certain self-responsibility. Um, you know, there's a funny thing about Jewish life, which is in so many ways, American Jews are such self-starters. You know, um, we, are, we are a people who, you know, we don't like something in terms of, uh, we think there's a social injustice, we, we get at it. We think there's a, a business opportunity, uh, we, we get at it. We think there's a, a, a movie that ought to be produced, we get at it. And then it comes to the question of anti-Semitism, right? And we're like, woe is us, right? right. What can we do? It's all out of our hands. And so there's, uh, I mean, I'm not the ideal person to answer this, but I would love to hear a, um, someone who has a psychological imagination analyze the Jewish people as a whole that on the one hand, in so many ways, such initiative takers, and in other ways, such fatalists. And I'd love to see us think more in terms of initiative when it comes to these large questions about um, Jewish life, not just anti-Semitism, continuity, uh, right. um, Jewish education, thriving Jewish communities, all of this kind of stuff is still in our hands. I'm wondering, you know, thinking, and you probably know better than I know the exact quote, isn't it? Was it Shimon Peres who said, the greatest contribution to the Jewish people is dissatisfaction? Does that sound familiar? Sounds, I knew, you know, I knew. <laughs> and it sounds like, it sounds like the sort of thing either he would have thought of or stolen from someone. Right, and someone online can, can Google it and let me know if that's accurate or not. Um, and I'm wondering, if, and I'm going to get to someone's question in the chat, but I wonder if that speaks to um, your role at um, Sapir, and if you'll tell us a little bit more about what you're doing um, and what we will be seeing. Is that well, okay? I was just looking behind me. Um, I think all of my copies are in my library, so I don't have one handy here in my study. So about, so you can't get one to me is what you're saying? <laughs> well, it's a very beautiful product and I would love to be able to um, at least show a copy uh, to 
um, the audience today, but I, I guess I'll have to leave that. Um, about a year ago, the people at the Maimonides Fund came to me and they said, you know, we're thinking of uh, possibly doing a journal with um, the view towards offering kind of not just diagnosis, but prescription mm -hmm. for the great Jewish issues. Um, Anti-Semitism, social justice, Zionism, education, uh, continuity, and so forth. And I said to them, look, you know, it's a great idea, but you can't do it over one issue. You, let's, let's do four. So they agreed to it. And I worked together with Felicia Herman, who is now their CEO and uh, just an extraordinary, very gifted, brilliant, brilliant woman. And Felicia and I, she is managing editor, me as editor in chief, um, with some help, um, put out a, this quarterly journal, which we've now decided to make uh, a more permanent feature of life. So we're about to come out with a fourth issue and then five, fifth, sixth, and so on are already uh, in the works. And what I had in mind is a journal that did a few things differently from, uh, from other publications. Number one, as I said, a lot of publications, it's diagnosis, here's the problem. I wanted our authors to say, here's what we can do about it. Here's the solution. Or here's, here's, the, the, yeah. here's the solution. Here is something that a thoughtful person could really you know, dig, their, dig their hands into this. Mm -hmm. uh, the second thing is, I mean, I say this jokingly, but um, I have a minimal social media presence. Uh, and um, my, my joke is that if this is read by too many people, it's a total failure. This is a publication that is intended for leaders in Jewish communal, philanthropic, educational life. This is a publication for, for doers in the Jewish world. Um, so if you get your hands on a copy or if you're reading it, the presumption is you're a doer. Uh, I don't want a publication that is read by you know, 50,000 people, maybe. I'd prefer to have a publication that's read by 5,000 people, definitely, and make sure that those are people who are reading this and saying, you know, that's a great idea. This is my next great philanthropic investment. Um, and the third aspect, finally, is that I didn't want a, I didn't want a publication that was neocon or progressive or orthodox or non-orthodox. This is a publication that's really for the entire Jewish world. So you will find liberal writers, you'll find conservative writers, you'll find Haredi writers, you'll find secular writers. I, I, I wanna run pieces that I personally disagree with because I think it's important. I don't mean to put you on the spot here, but as you're speaking, I'm just curious, have you ever thought of having um, a Sapir convention, bringing in those various voices and authors speaking together? Yes, well, this is another, this is- yeah, Sorry, so I didn't mean to throw that in. Well, one of the things about starting a publication that's wonderful is that you, you, you feel your way. <laughs> so one of the things that we were doing, of course, we're we were limited to a great extent by COVID, but right. I was, uh, routinely interviewing, I wish I could do more of these, but with each issue, I would interview like four or five of our authors for a Zoom call. Um, and it would get, these would get sizable sizable audiences. Uh, I had a wonderful Zoom call with 
Ruth Weiss uh, with uh, Inat Wilf with, uh, we, we, did, we did one with um, uh, um, uh, Howard Jacobson, the great, the great British novelist who wrote a marvelous piece for us. Um, we're gonna expand those. We believe that at some point, Sapir should have a convening function. I would love to have an occasion where if I have an author who has written something about say reinventing Jewish day schools, then I could bring together this author around a table with um, uh, a rabbi, an educator, a philanthropist, or two philanthropists for um, conversations that make where things can happen. Um, and, uh, and so we are very ambitious to um, not just say things, but say things that lead to um, positive change in Jewish life. Well, if you ever need a physical home to, you know, gather, please know that Sinai Temple would love to um, host such a such a gathering. Oh, well, uh, that's that's a great invitation. We we're, we're big fans. <laughs> I want to make sure I get to this question. And I should say, um, David Wolpe had a wonderful piece in our inaugural issue, and he says hello as well. Um, okay, this just hold on. Let me get back to that. Okay. The question is, by the way, recently that David has two brothers. And at least I know one of them who's even smarter than David. So those must have been three some, brothers, three brothers, yeah, three brothers. OK, well, I know one of his brothers who's at Emory and the brother's even smarter than David, which is terrifying. I can't make comments like that. <laughs> I think they're all pretty impressive. I, <laughs> as the associate rabbi, you know, I can't say that. Um, since I know okay. he's listening, I hope he's chuckling. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I hope he's laughing. Okay, so this question um, was going back to uh, the conversation about college campuses. So interestingly, if we don't uh, if we don't pick fights in terrain that isn't friendly, doesn't that just cede our power? Well, yes or no, maybe. I mean, look. Um, there is something, there are times when you have to pick a fight, right? And there are times when you have to figure out that you need to go and plow uh, new fields. Um, and uh, when you feel like the best you're gonna end up doing at a place like, I'm just saying Berkeley, let's say, is end up with an intellectual stalemate, that might not be the most productive use of limited resources and limited time. Um, and my contention, and I think the Abraham Accords proves this, mm. is that there is a world out there that we scarcely know that's really interested in what the Jewish people have to offer. And we don't engage it because it's a little bit far afield from the, the worlds we inhabit. Um, uh, you know, my daughter is about to go to an elite university and comes from an elite, you know, high school and and I imagine a career, you know, in some elite space. And, and, and this is, I think, as I say this, I'm, I'm thinking there are a lot of people who are listening on this call who are like, yeah, that's our experience too, right? It's a, it's a particular world. Maybe we should step outside of it. Maybe we should actually think, hey, you know, in um, Sub-Saharan Africa, there's real hunger for engagement uh, with, um, with Israel, uh, with the Jewish people. What can we do 
to deepen that? What can we do to engage it in a way that's mutually productive? How is it that India, a country of uh, one and almost one and a half billion people, up until 30 years ago, ba barely had, I don't even think had diplomatic relations with Israel. Now there's this blossoming relationship, but even now it's in its, in its infancy. I mean, India is an extraordinary country, not just by virtue of its size, but by the dynamism of its people and the sympathy of values between India, you know, in many respects political, but also cultural values between um, Indian Americans, Jewish Americans, Indians and Israelis. What can be done to harness that, right? I think they're just these incredible opportunities to do something that's really interesting, where you're not just fighting the next battle to see, you know, who's going to say what at um, uh, 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 a Hillel house in your local California state school. Not to denigrate those Hillel houses, they do important work. Incredible work. Saying people who are innovative, really, we need to start thinking as we would about an entrepreneurial. Uh, um, endeavor? How do we just overturn the model that we've been dealing with these last many years? Well, and what I heard from you tonight is that you're not saying don't call out. You know, when you hear anti-Zionistic, when you hear it, again, to also summarize, that does not, that's not equated with criticizing Israel, criticizing Israel. Uh, just to, again, summarize, I want to make sure everyone hears that, um, in your own words, is, is something that, that, anyone does in a democratic state. You can criticize the government when you start to um, speak about the elimination of a people, um, that's when you call out. Well, absolutely. And that's, and that's because it engages you not just as a political animal, but as a moral one. Correct. Right? Um, uh, you know, it's, it's fair game in any democratic society to criticize policy and to be strenuous about it. And that's why we also, we also have to be careful um, those of us who are on the side of Israel to say, hey, hang on a second. If we believe in these liberal values or if we're going to champion Israel as a democratic state, then we have to also be champions of the idea that um, uh, criticism uh, needs to be, needs to go far, far and wide, right? There's, there's plenty mm -hmm. to criticize and there's an e even more of a right to criticize. Right. Um, as Jews to say, listen, Israel, if, if Israel is the nation state of the Jewish people and they do X, Y and Z, which is not consonant with my values as a liberal or progressive or whatever, speak out by all means. But when you're when you're when you're saying something about a country which is effectively calling for its destruction and incidentally saying it about no other country in the world, right? no other country in the world, then you have you, you're playing a different game. Um, and, uh, and, and that's when I think it's, it's exigent, it's urgent that, that, that you speak out because that, that, that crosses moral lines that need to, be, uh, need to be engaged. But the question that you had asked was, well, you had asked a question about PR. And my answer is, well, when I think about that, I'm thinking, why not make inroads where you can make them well rather than end up like at the Battle of the Somme, you know, in a bloody stalemate. And that's the, the second piece I was gonna say is that what I'm learning from you tonight is call out when you need to call out. Don't be complicit in your silence. But if you are only calling out to those that are attacking, then 
then what kind of building, or maybe speaking to what you were saying in terms of what you're doing with, with stuff here, where are the solutions? How are you a, a solution builder? Um, in, in my mind, what you're offering us is, is both. Call out and build. And, and by the way, maybe I, I haven't thought this through well enough, and, and maybe there's someone on this call who's saying to herself, no, no, these are battles you have to fight relentlessly. And, and, and maybe I'm wrong, I don't know. But um, uh, I do think there is, uh, people have to think about what the best uses of their time um, are going to be. Um, and there is power in responding to provocation with silence, not always, um, not in every case, but there is power at times in, uh, in doing that, especially when um, the person, when, when, when you're being provoked in a way to make you weaker, not stronger. Mm. So in so much in life, you know, the rules of um, the schoolyard uh, um, or the reality of the schoolyard uh, still has something to teach us. Mm. Brett, we're coming down to our final minutes. Um, and I'm curious, any last thoughts of tonight on, on any of the topics that we brought up that you want to leave Sinai Temple and the greater community with? Well, I mean, look, there is so much to be pessimistic about. Uh, and uh, I would, and I have to fight against my own pessimism because I'm in the business of dealing with it. Um, by virtue of what I do as a commentator and a writer. I think there are profound grounds for at least long-term optimism. Mm -hmm. um, if you had said 20 years ago that um, the Arab-Israeli conflict for all intents and purposes would soon come to an end, even without resolving the Arab, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, no one would believe you. No. And it happened. Right, right, right. Uh, if you had said that the Israeli economy would be many times the size it was when uh, I was in Israel and the country really felt like it was sinking during the Intifada, second Intifada, felt like it was sinking, a lot of people wouldn't believe you. The country has proved it has a capacity to overcome problems which at the moment seem totally insoluble. So someone here on this call is undoubtedly saying, yes, but what about the fact that, you know, uh, you have a disproportionate growth of the Haredi population or of the Arab-Israeli sector or um, corruption or, you know, one thing or another. Sure. Um, Israel has a 74-year track record or soon to be 74 years of overcoming much larger challenges. And I would say this also about the United States, which is that, you know, in the contest between dictatorships and democracies, dictatorships um, showcase their strength and they hide their weakness. Democracies showcase their weakness mm. and hide our strengths. We don't hide them deliberately. We sometimes hide, we don't even know they're there, right? Um, if you're old enough to remember the Cold War, you might be old enough to remember that people were kind of shocked that the Soviet Union just collapsed because from the outside, for decades, it appeared like this formidable colossus that bestrode like a third of the globe and had mayday parades with 
huge missiles and endless parades of soldiers and so on. And yet for all of its show of strength, it was brittle. And when it cracked, it shattered. The United States, we're, we're in the business of advertising everything that's the matter with us. And there's a lot that, that's the matter with us. But this is a country that has a capacity for renewal and regeneration, for um, figuring things out that others don't figure out. You know, I'm friends with Gary Kasparov, who uh, some people may know is a, a great chess player and um, the greatest chess player, I should say. And uh, you know, Gary sees America through the eyes of an immigrant. Um, and I think often immigrants see things about us that we, we, we fail to notice. He said to me, I had breakfast with him a few months ago. He said, you know, China gave us the virus. Doesn't mean the Chinese people, but the Chinese government gave us a virus. And American ingenuity, or at least Western ingenuity, gave us the vaccines. Mm. Um, I thought that was a really profound insight. You know, one of the reasons why we've been beset by the coronavirus, even wh whether you believe the lab leak theory or not, I, I happen to believe it, you know, a, a autocratic government tried to hide a problem during the vital days when that thing could have been contained and it slipped out and has wrecked havoc on the world. But when I think of what gives me hope, I think of scientists who understand that mRNA vaccines aren't just going to help us emerge from COVID, they are soon gonna be curing all kinds of diseases that we had no idea were, were curable up until, up until quite recently. And there's a reason that was made in America, right? Or at least there, that was made in the free world, I should say, because people mm. from outside America contributed. Um, because free societies innovate, they think anew, they deal with problems and instead of shattering, instead of being brittle, they're flexible and flexibility leads to strength. So my last thought to you and to the people on this call is uh, don't be so pessimistic. Um, things turn and, uh, and um, you know, if you are active, if you're engaged, if you're not passive, uh, great things can happen. Mm, what a beautiful charge to all of us. You know, I think about the way that we end a book of the Torah where we say chazak, chazak benit chazak. And I certainly feel a sense of strength from your comments regarding the way that Israel can be portrayed in the future, um, the ways in which we should not be complacent um, in the ways that we use our voice um, and our leadership. And um, most of all, that we should leave tonight knowing that we're meant to build. And so I thank you so much for giving us that um, charge, as you said, in a world in which we can certainly feel um, the weight of the pessimism that surrounds us. Um, you offered us light tonight, Brett. So I truly offer so much gratitude on behalf of Sinai Temple and our Israel Center. Thank you so much. And please, I hope that we'll have a chance to see you back in person very, very soon. Thank you, Rabbi. It's lovely seeing you and my best to all my friends at Temple Sinai. Thank you. Good night. Good night.